Have you ever woken up in the morning overwhelmed with anxiety? Uh, first thing in the day, you're already thinking about all the stuff on your plate, all the things ahead of you, maybe all the uh, different relational struggles you have, people that are opposed to you, whatever it might be. Um, if that's you, if you've ever dealt with that, then this psalm is going to be very helpful for you. This psalm is a morning prayer, it's, it's, so it's clearly written to be, in some sense, read in the morning. And the psalmist here is written by someone who's uh, greatly distressed. Right? He's in trouble, he's anxious, and he's trying to deal with these anxieties and these burdens of just really horrible life circumstances. So I think this is going to be a helpful one for so many of us because a lot of us can identify with that. We've been in that kind of a situation. Now, a note before we get into this passage, and I want to talk about um, the superscriptions. So I've mentioned this a couple of times that there are certain um, notes that are written that are not they're not a verse in the English Bible, and so it I think it can almost seem like a throwaway uh, comment. So just to clarify this, so in my Bible there are titles to each of the Psalms. So for this Psalm it says, "Save me, O my God." Now that title is not original to the text of Scripture. That was written by the editor of this Bible. That whoever compiled this put headings to different chapters just to help you as a reader to kind of be oriented. Okay, so that can be very helpful, but that's not inspired scripture. But right underneath it, and maybe your Bible is the same, there's a comment. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So that's the superscript, or that's the, it's also called the title very often in, in the Bible. Um, but this is a, a heading of sorts that gives some information about the, the scripture that we're about to read that's you know often very important. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, that would be verse one of the psalm. So in our Bible, verse one is what, you know, for us when the psalm seems to start, right? Oh Lord, how many are my foes? So we don't have that as a verse. It's kind of like verse zero or something. It's very, very strange. And it makes commentaries that are, you know, folks on the Hebrew Bible, very confusing in the Psalms because they're always one verse off when there's a superscription, right? So they're one verse ahead. So it can be confusing when you're reading. So I just want to be clear, the whole point, I'm making a big point of this, to say this superscription is inspired scripture. It should be treated as such. Don't just gloss over it. In this instance of Psalm 3, this gives us some very helpful information about this passage. So if you pass over it, you're going to miss a lot of the context of this psalm. So look at it again. This is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So it tells us two things that are crucial. One is who wrote it. It's David. A lot of the Psalms, especially in this first book, the first 41 uh, Psalms, a lot of them are written by David. But we see here confirmation of that. And then we see, even more importantly, the circumstances for this. What, what are the circumstances in which David wrote this? Well, he wrote it when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Now, if you remember the story of Absalom, this is a very important one. And, and I think We'll, we'll make a note to include the Daily Gospel episode that dealt with these chapters in 2 Samuel uh, for this underneath uh, in the description, okay? So you can take a look at that and hear more of that story. But the basic story starts in 2 Samuel 11, and it starts with David sinning with Bathsheba. So David, who has multiple wives already, decides to take someone's wife who's not his own. Right? He sees Bathsheba, she's beautiful. He takes her into his palace, sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. And so then to cover up that sin, David murders Uriah. He essentially orders him to 
be, you know, be given, given commands as one of his soldiers to charge the gates of the city that he's attacking and then for all the soldiers to abandon him and to leave him to his death. So David essentially murders Uriah. And he's found out, of course. He's confronted by the prophet Nathan. And he's told that he's going to repay for this sin fourfold. So David's going to end up losing four of his children, four of his sons, as a result of this murder. And so we see that in the following chapters. Now, one of the repercussions of the sin is that the sword is always going to be present in David's house, meaning warfare is going to be present, division and evil. And what happens is one of his sons, Absalom, rebels against him and takes the throne and does horrible wickedness. And, in, and he does this uh, in rebellion against his father. Now, we know from previous Psalms, rebellion against the king, the Messianic king, is a serious thing. Remember Psalm 2. It's all about this, this conspiracy against the, the anointed of the Lord. Now, we know that points ultimately to Jesus, but in this immediate context, David is God's anointed. He's sort of the, the, the forerunner of Jesus, the shadow of Jesus at this point in the Old Testament. So to rebel against David is an incredibly serious thing. Now, David is forced to flee Jerusalem with his army, and he's in a very vulnerable spot at this point. So this is the context of this passage. David is fleeing. He doesn't know what the results are going to be, but he's trying to take confidence in God that his enemies will be thwarted. Now, one example we have of this in that story is a man named Ahithophel who helps Absalom with his conspiracy. Ahithophel is this incredibly wise man. He's an advisor to King David, but he's also the grandfather of Bathsheba. So he ends up taking Absalom's side in this. He has, you know, a bone to pick with David for obvious reasons, but he engages in this rebellion, which is not sanctioned by God, and he becomes an advisor for Absalom. Now, David knows that if Ahithophel is advising Absalom, that he's going to lose. Ahithophel is too wise. He, he doesn't get things wrong. So David understands this. And so David prays as he's leaving that God would turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, that he would thwart the efforts of his enemy. And he leaves behind Hushai, this other advisor, to you know hopefully counteract the advice of Ahithophel. So Hushai and Ahithophel are both advising Absalom now. Hushai is basically a double agent, and Ahithophel wants Absalom to succeed. Ahithophel advises that Absalom go and attack his father right away. And Hushai says, no, build this great army. And he appeals to the, the vainglory, the vanity of Absalom and convinces him to wait to attack. And that allows David to escape. So we see God working in these circumstances in the story in a way to protect David. God is still in, in control and he's going to thwart this rebellion against him. And Ahithophel, once he sees his advice is not followed, he goes home, gets his affairs in order, and, and kills himself. So Ithophel knows that if his advice is not followed, that their whole plot is going to be ruined. So we, we get a window in this psalm into the condition in which David wrote this psalm. We can see the background, and that's so helpful. And in fact, the following psalms, I think, are going to kind of be at the same time of David's life, most likely. So we'll notice a lot of a military imagery in this psalm, and that makes sense because David is dealing with a military context, right? He's at war with his son in this civil war. So let's jump into the text of the psalm, and we'll see what it's all about. So first we see the problem in, in Psalm 3, verses 1 through 2. We see the problem that David is laying out. Now, there's a repetition here in these first verses of the word many. 
many, 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 three times. So there's this feeling of David being outnumbered by many people who are against him. So he's saying, I have all these foes, I have all these people rising up against me. And this word many is actually used in the Absalom narrative. We see it specifically in 2 Samuel 15, 12, uh, of the people that are going and flocking to Absalom's side to be against David. So this he has many people who are conspiring against him, many people who are joining in this evil rebellion. And not just that, they're rising against David. That's the, the term he used. Now, that, that means that they're looking to attack him. They're moving to attack David. They're mobilizing against him. And they're attacking him not just outwardly, but at a very personal level. They're saying of his soul in verse 2, there is no salvation for him in God. So they're speaking to his soul or who he is at the, at the deepest level, and they're saying that God is not going to help him. So David's in a, a serious situation, both in terms of his spiritual discouragement that could happen from this and physical harm that could fall on him. And so, of course, David begins to look up to God. This is the common pattern in the Psalms, right? To lament, to speak to the situation, the, the, the heaviness of what's against them, and then to look up to God, to lift their eyes beyond their circumstances to the God who can affect change. So we see next the Savior. That's in verses 3 through 4, the Savior. So the problem, he's been honest about it, and now he's looking to the one who can actually save him. He focus, his, his focus shifts from the problem to the provider, the one who can fix it. So God, we see here God is protecting him from all sides. He says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. So he's a shield providing protection. He's his glory, which sort of points to that David's significance, his value, his identity is found in God. And he's the lifter of my head. This, is, this would be the opposite phrase of somebody having their, their neck or their, their foot on the neck of their enemies. So that would be a posture of dominance and submission, right? That you, um, if you have the, your, your foot on someone's neck, that means that you have had victory, you're oppressing them. But here God is lifting up the head of his servant. He's giving him hope. He's turning around his circumstances and pulling him out of a desperate situation. And we see uh, the, the, the words in verse four, which are, are very simple and beautiful. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. So God is answering him. And he's answering him from the holy hill, which is the place of the coronation. Right? We saw this in Psalm 2, that, um, that the coronation is happening, and he's on the holy hill, sitting as king on, on the holy hill. And here, um, God is answering from the same place. He's answering David and, and uh, saving him in the midst of this terrible circumstance. And then we see in the second half of the psalm how God answers the prayer. So we have the problem, then we have the Savior, and then in verses 5 through 8, we have the salvation. How does God save David? Well, look at verse 5. I, I love this verse. I think it's so encouraging. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. So this is why I say this is a morning prayer um, because he's saying, I, I, you know, I just woke up essentially. And the reason why I was able to sleep and why I woke up is because God sustained me. I love this because it reminds me of what sleep is all about. Now, maybe that sounds weird, but sleeping is a theological thing, right? It's a thing that requires confidence in God. When you lay your head down at night, you are essentially 
actively trusting that something or someone is going to keep things moving while you're asleep. That maybe your investment portfolio is going to be safe or um, the rains won't wash away your home or your kids will, will be healthy and safe. Whatever it might be, when we sleep, we are sort of putting everything into God's hands. And for us as Christians, we know that this is not something we do ignorantly. It's something that we do actively to trust in God. God is the one who's in control. And often when we can't sleep, it's because we believe that we're in control and that the world will stop spinning if we're not awake and able to act in some way. And so to be able just to sleep, to lay down in peace and sleep is, is, tr- is trusting that God will sustain you, that God will make you wake again. So David's looking at his circumstances and saying, God has provided for me. And then he says in verse six, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So he's, he's affirming, I'm not going to be afraid of these people that are arrayed against me, that are opposing me. I'm going to trust in God. This God is worthy of trust. He has saved me. He has provided for me. And so I am going to trust in him. David can't control his circumstances, but he can control how he responds to those circumstances. And I don't know if you've ever had the situation where you've been in a desperate time in your life, everything's going wrong, and yet you've said, I'm going to actively trust in God. You've had the supernatural sense of clarity and peace in the toughest times. But that's what, that's what David's doing. He's saying, I can't fix this. It's in God's hands, so I'm just going to trust in him. Very simple, but very powerful truth for us. And then in verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. So this is his prayer. He's praying that God would arise or act on his behalf. Do something, right? Save me. Act, God. And then he speaks of two different things. He says, you strike my enemies on the cheek. A strike on the cheek wouldn't be fatal. It wouldn't even necessarily be that painful, but it is insulting. So he's saying, insult my enemies, essentially. And then he speaks to breaking the teeth of the wicked, which is an interesting phrase, and it probably refers to destroying the power of the wicked. It's, it's used other places in Scripture seemingly to refer to um, allowing someone to escape from being trapped. So it's like there's a, a beast that has its claws or its, its fangs around somebody, and when the teeth are broken, that person's able to escape. So that seems to be the idea. It also reminds us of Genesis 3.15, where God promises one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And obviously, if you're breaking someone's teeth, then you are, in some sense, crushing their head. So God's going to bring victory, both in this temporary way for his anointed David, but it'll also bring victory ultimately for and through Jesus Christ as he defeats all evil. And then the, the psalm ends with verse 8, saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. That, that phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord, reminds us, maybe if you've gone through the Bible with us, it should remind you of the book of Jonah, where God uses that phrase, and it's really the key phrase of the entire book. Um, but he ends here with a strong confidence in God because he knows that God is the one who has salvation in his hand. God is in control of everything, and so he's the one who can save. And I love how he ends with that, that term blessing again. 
We saw it in Psalm 1, in Psalm 2, and we see it here again. This is going to be such a theme in the Psalms. But God is bringing blessing to his people because of his character, because he is the one who's able to save even in the midst of terrible circumstance. So David in his circumstance is confident that God is going to save him. And so that's, that's where it ends for us. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing beyond your people. So what are some practical things we can take from this? Well, again, I think this gives us instruction for how we can deal with anxiety in our lives. Now, I'm sure many of you are saying, well, this is about specific circumstances. David is dealing with a physical enemy. Um, This is not necessarily comparable to my life. And of course, that's true. But um, even though David is dealing with a literal battle, that's, that's much bigger than our circumstances probably. But very often, these kind of battle terms are used metaphorically in Scripture to talk about spiritual suffering or anxiety that we deal with. So the basics of dealing with anxiety, whether you have a big anxiety or a small anxiety, it's, the basics are always the same. The basics are clear. It's focus on God and ask for his help, right? Be honest, confess the struggle to God, but then turn and focus on him. Remember who he is and ask him for help because he's able to save. So there's nothing you know, magical. It's just very simple stuff, very simple steps of how we should respond But I would challenge you, do you actually do that when you face anxiety? Do you make a pattern of saying, I'm not going to just carry this on my own shoulders. I'm going to turn to God and give him my circumstances. I can't control my circumstances, but I can control my response to my circumstances. And that means I should go to God and give him my burdens. I also think it's important to point out that the righteous are able to stand firm in God's grace and the wicked aren't. The righteous are more stable, like we saw in Psalm 1. They're like that tree planted by streams of water because they have God's grace and his promises to, to guide and to ground them. And so we should remember that. W.S. Plummer, who has a great commentary on Psalms, I'm sure I'll be quoting from it quite a bit. I love this phrase he said. He said, how small a thing fatally depresses the wicked. David in flight is confident. Ahithophel at court is in despair and hangs himself. It's an amazing, amazing observation, right? David is confident, even though he has everything going wrong. Ahithophel is in the seat of power, and yet he knows that his plans are going to fail because God is not with him. I think also we can take from this, and we'll see a little bit in the next chapter as well, but we can take a theology of sleep. I think we should have a theology of sleep, right? We take for granted too many things like that God will sustain us when we sleep. And I think when you go to bed, be active when you're thinking about that. God, you love me and you sustain me. The only way that I am going to wake tomorrow is if you keep me alive. As if, and the only way things are going to stay together in my life is if you are watching over and guiding them. And this, to me, I think sometimes the best thing we can do is take a nap. <laughs> when things are going crazy, we, we have no way to fix them and we're anxious and we're, we're, we're burnt out. Sometimes you have to pray to God and then go to sleep for a little bit and trust that he is the one who can fix them, and that that's in his control. I think also a thing we should remember from this is that no one can harm you outside of God's will. That the only harm that comes to us is that which God wills in our life. And that means if God loves his people fully, which he does, then that means the only harm that will come to you is for your ultimate good. So whatever, whatever you deal with, whatever struggles you have, it's God working in your circumstances to bless you. 
right? Romans 8.28 says that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Or I should say, all things work together for good for those who love God. So every circumstance we have is God working his perfect good in our life. So don't, don't be overwhelmed by fear like the world would be. Be confident that God is in control and that this too will work for your ultimate good. And then the last thing is always be remembering. Always be remembering and meditating on God's word, his truth, and on his works in your life, right? Maybe his works in the past and his works today and what he'll do in the future. Be remembering what God has done and what he says. And take confidence, like Hebrew 13, 8 says, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So be confident. Remember who God is. Remember what he's done. And, and don't stray away from that. Keep looking to him. And then I think just one quick observation before we end. In verse 2, he says, he says um, people are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That word salvation is essentially the word Yeshua. It's, it's very closely related to our word that, that's translated in the, in the Greek as Jesus. So it's almost like they're saying there's no Jesus for him in God. And it's a good reminder for us who know Christ, who know where salvation comes from, the ultimate source, to remember that Jesus Christ is our ultimate confidence. That because we have him, because we've seen his salvation worked out in history, that we can be confident even when others might mock us or say we have no hope, we can turn again to what God has done in Jesus Christ to redeem us, to fix our greatest problem now, and to fix every problem in eternity. So that, that, that's our passage for today. Tomorrow we'll look at uh, a little bit more of how to, how to sleep like a baby.